Hi everyone, uh, thanks for tuning in. It's been a um, uh, funny sort of 12, 12 hours, something like that, isn't it? Uh, so we're in lockdown, we haven't been able to avoid that. It's been a great blessing that, that we have um, been able to avoid lockdown uh, for a while and we continue to pray for our um, Sydney friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ as they wrestle with it, but we're joining them too. Um, but it, it's, for some of us, it's a bit of a tough week and a, a, yeah, a difficult time. So uh, if you would like to talk to someone about that, if you need some help, um, please be in touch. Uh, don't hesitate to do that. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an unsettling time for a lot of people. I'd also encourage you to keep in touch. So keep checking your emails. Um, if you're on our Facebook group, then, um, then keep checking that as well, and then we'll continue to, um, uh, to upload uh, sermons and, and we'll, have a, uh, we'll email out a service outline, um, most likely, if we need it, next week and the weeks after. We'll see how we go. Hopefully we don't. Please continue to pray about that. I'm going to start by reading um, Acts chapter 12, our reading for today. So if you've got a Bible, uh, press pause right now and go and grab a Bible and then um, uh, come back and join us. So it's Acts chapter 12, I'll read 1 to 25. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the, sh in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put your clothes on and sa clothes and sandals, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he, had, he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. She kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. 
Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted uh, personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food and supply. On the appointment Uh, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord, the word of God, continued to spread and flourish. Well, we're going to watch a little little, uh, clip of a movie, and then we're going to come back together. Enjoy. Three deposits tonight. And it did like he was told. Buffed those shoes to a high mirror shine. The guard simply didn't notice. Neither did I. I mean, seriously. How often do you really look at a man's shoes?
500 yards. That's the length of five football fields, just shy of half a mile. morning, right about the time Raquel was spilling her little secret, a man nobody ever laid eyes on before strolled into the main national bank. Until that moment, he didn't exist, except on paper. May I help you? He had all the proper ID, driver's license, birth certificate, social security card, and the signature was a spot-on match. I must say, I'm sorry to be losing your business. I hope you'll enjoy living abroad. Thank you. I'm sure I will. Well, there we have it. Uh, I'd love you to have your Bible open in front of you. Uh, that'll be really useful. Uh, Beck has sent out some activities for kids. If you haven't got that organised, it might be good for you to have that if you've got some kids with you as well, and the kids can do their thing, we can do our thing. Uh, how about I pray for us as well, and we'll um, have a look at this, this passage together. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We pray that, um, uh, Lord, you would teach us by your word. We would listen carefully and we put your words into practice. We thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yeah, ask most people what makes their top ten movies. And, yes, the Shawshank Redemption usually makes it every time. But did you know, a bit of useless trivia for you, that um, it tanked at the box office. It didn't do so well. Now Morgan Freeman, who plays Red in the movie, uh, one of the prisoners, uh, he, he once said, and this was his reason why it tanked, is that people, uh, people couldn't pronounce or remember the name of the movie. So they would say, well, what was the movie you saw? And they'd say, oh, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the shoe shop rescue, uh, the, uh, the, the Shankshaw detention. Um, yeah, anyway, I thought it was funny. God, if, that's why. People couldn't remember and pronounce it. It's a great film. And again, look, I suppose apologies for the spoiler. Um, well, if you haven't seen it by now, really, you should go and see it. It's a good movie. It, it is a story of hopelessness and then redemption, uh, escape. It's a good story. It makes a great movie. But of course, that's what it is. It's, it's a movie. It's... It's fiction. Uh, it's Hollywood doing its thing. But Acts chapter 12, the rescue that we read of here, the redemption, I suppose, that we read of here, well, it's not Hollywood. It's history. It's the, it's, it's the history of the early church, and this is a significant moment. Well, as the word of God was spreading, 
Luke, who writes Acts and the Gospel of Luke, sort of part one and part two both go together. Luke has been recording one marvellous conversion after another over these last few chapters. And Luke now records in Acts chapter 12 a serious setback. Peter was in prison and about to suffer the same fate as the Apostle James, who had just been put to death with the sword, beheaded for the sake of the gospel. Both had been leaders of the Jerusalem church. And so as we read these first few verses in Acts chapter 12, we're left wondering. We're left wondering what hope was there against the might of King Herod, against Rome. And what's God doing in all this? Well, hopefully you've got the outline there. I sent you an outline through as well, and maybe you picked it up in, the, um, uh, in your email. But if not, that's okay. You can see up on the screen. Um, these, the days at the start of this chapter couldn't be any darker for the Christian church than they are here. There is something especially despicable about these Herods, these Herodian kings, the Roman-appointed kings of Judea, all were successors of, the great, uh, of Herod the Great, who was uh, most famous because he was the one at the start of Matthew's Gospel that sought to have Jesus killed as a baby because he viewed, Herod, uh, viewed him, Jesus, as a threat to the throne. Herod the Great's descendants, and uh, you can see up on the screen there, just uh, Herod, King Herod, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa, his grandson. So Herod the Great's descendants continued to be these puppet kings in the Roman Empire and all followed in their grandfather's footsteps. They were men whose priority was political gain and efficiency. They all lacked, well, they all lacked integrity and no mercy. No compassion. And the Herod we meet, who's Herod Agrippa I, he's the one on the right there, is no exception. So in great uh, political expediency, he soon discovers that the only way to keep the Jews on side and keep the peace, as he was anxious to keep the peace in Palestine because that pleased Rome, the only way to do that was to persecute Christians. And this pleased not only the Romans, but this pleased the Jews as well. And so he has James put to death. He's the first of the 12 to be martyred. And he seizes Peter for the same purpose. Two key leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And verse 3 tells us that the Jews, well, the Jews are very pleased. James and Peter, and with John as well, were part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. They were at the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. They were also at the raising of Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8. And Jesus did warn James and John, who back in Mark chapter 10, I've got a little bit up there as well, uh, that Je when they asked Jesus for the best seats in the kingdom, give us the best seats in the kingdom, Jesus said, well, hang on, no, no, no. He warned them that they too would, would drink his cup and, and share, in his, share with the baptism, his baptism. That is, they would share in his sufferings. And so we see this come, come to play. So after arresting Peter, Herod put him in prison. Uh, perhaps the famous Tower of Antonia, um, Tower of Antonia in the northwest corner of the temple precinct in Jerusalem. It's still, you can go to the ruins today. Um, it was famous for its brutality. 
Well, verse 4 tells us Peter was handed over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each who would have worked shifts so that each squad would be on duty for six hours at a, at a time, possibly only three hours during the night on night watches. Again, verse 4, we're told Herod's intention was to bring Peter out for a, a public trial, a sham trial really, and then um, uh, uh, that was after the Passover to please the Jews as well. Uh, there would be no executions in the Passover, that was important. And then Peter's trial would then, of course, be followed by his execution. The situation looked hopeless. It looked hopeless. So there, there's no possibility of escape. There, there's nothing, nothing Shawshank going on here. What could this little community of Jesus do against the might of Rome? Things look very dark indeed. But there is a ray of hope. Have a look at verse 5 with me. Get your Bible there. Have a look at verse 5. See, can you see, can you see that, that hope, that ray of hope there? Let me read it. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Luke wants us to notice a contrast at this point which will become even more obvious as his account, as this account sort of um, unfolds uh, as the chapter goes on. Luke is contrasting the political authority of Herod with God's sovereign control. That's what prayer is, isn't it? Prayer is trusting in God's sovereign control. You see, the chapter begins well for Herod, with the Jews on side and the Christian leadership contained. But the church was praying. Luke even goes to the extent of describing Herod's security arrangements to guard Peter, just to make sure we get the point. Squads of soldiers, soldiers, chains, sentries, guarding the exits, two lines of guards and an iron gate. But the church was praying. Praying earnestly, verse 5 tells us. These Christians believe that somehow, whether or not by another miracle, God could free this imprisoned apostle and answer their prayers. So we've got two communities, haven't we? We've got the world and the church, one up against each other, each wielding their appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, the security of prison. On the other side, the church was praying which is the only power which the powerless possess. Well, let's see what happens. God's sovereign hand at work. It's our second little point in the outline, if you've got it there. Verse 6, Peter is asleep. I find this interesting, don't you? I don't think I'd be asleep knowing that tomorrow I'm going to lose my head. <laughs> I'd be a little bit anxious, but no, no, Peter is asleep. Now, if we flip over, we don't have to do it right now, but if we flip over to chapter 16, Paul's in prison. Paul finds himself in prison in, in Philippi. Do you remember what Paul does, if, you've, if you know that, uh, that story, of his, that, that account of him in prison? What does Paul do? Paul sings hymns. He's singing. I think it drives the, the prison guards nuts as well, but he sings hymns. So here we have one sings and one sleeps. As they're facing death, one sings, one sleeps. Both equally defiant of death. You see, to quote 1 Corinthians 15, death has lost its sting. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 
There is no fear in death for those who belong to the Lord Jesus because of the victory of the resurrection. So one sleeps, one sings. So yeah, Peter's asleep and then he's woken by an angel and told to get up. He's told to get dressed. I love the fact that he's in his pyjamas. I don't know what that indicates or what that means. It's just interesting, isn't it? You can work it out later on. He passes the guards uh, through the opened uh, iron gate, opened for him, and he's struggling to work out what's happening. Is, this, is he having another vision? Well, thankfully, this is not one of those uh, surely not Lord moments. Peter ob- obeys without question. And so in verse 11, he expresses his confidence in God's sovereign control. Have a look at it with me. He says, Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt. Now I know without a doubt. But let's not miss Luke's point. Let's not get distracted by all the action. Remember, the church was praying. Luke wants the reader to see, clear as crystal, how Peter was set free. Because the church was praying earnestly, praying to God for him, and God in his sovereignty and control of all all things had answered their prayers. But let's just, um, well, not not literally, don't press the pause button, but figuratively press the pause button, have a little tangent. It's it's a little bit, it's, it's relevant. Why don't we see miracles like this today? I don't know, I've never seen someone break out of prison like this. Um, maybe you've wondered that as well. Maybe you feel a bit of a disconnect between, from, the, from the vibrant, spirit-filled ministries of the early church and here we are, you know, just plugging away. Sometimes we hear of miracles today, but quite often our response is, is with a bit of scepticism. But I think the important question then is, what, what was the purpose of miracles in the Bible? Well, I think here's a, here's a good answer I came across. Uh, miracles in Scripture are acts of God that proclaim his sovereign power over creation as well as his commitment to the good of his people. I think that's good. Uh, miracles are often significant because they serve a larger purpose in God's saving plan. We might call it God's redemptive plan. Testifying to the authenticity of God's messengers who bring his word to his people. They, they show who God is and they serve to advance the gospel. So in John's gospel, for example, John calls Jesus' miracles signs because they point to something. They, they tell us something about Jesus, that is, about Jesus' identity. Miracles reveal that Jesus is God. And the proper response then is to worship Jesus as God. And so when we come to the miracles of the early church... Well, they served an immediately relevant purpose in redemptive history. That is, they verified the authenticity of the apostles and the word of God that the apostles spoke. The miracles verified this is God's word, this is God's message, this is the gospel from God, the good news of Jesus Christ. But they also, these miracles also marked a new age in God's plan of saving his people. Uh, The word of God, the gospel, is salvation for all, not just Israel, but for Jew and Gentile. Anyone can be saved, anyone can receive the spirit. And so the miracles testify to that. So how should we think about miracles today? Well, as I've just said, we must realise that the, 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 
the sheer volume and proximity of the miracles in the Bible served, to see, served significant purposes in God's redemptive plan at the time. However, this point doesn't mean that miracles have ceased today. Indeed, there's nothing inappropriate in seeking miracles or asking God for the miraculous to happen for the proper purposes for which they are given by God. That is, to confirm the truthfulness of the gospel message, to bring help to those who are in need, to remove hindrances to people's ministries, uh, to bring glory to God. We ask big prayers because God's a big God and he answers our prayers. Miracles still happen. Of course, the greatest miracles that happen, friends, is when, when a friend of yours, a family member, indeed you, turn from idols to serve the true and living God. When you start following Jesus, that is the greatest miracle. It leaves all the other ones for dead. We need to avoid two. We need to avoid extremes of seeing either everything as a miracle or nothing as a miracle. Let's sit somewhere in the middle. Not everything is a miracle. And, and, and we've got to see nothing as miracles as well. It's got to sit in the middle. Okay, well, let's get back to Peter and the church praying. You see, again, Luke actually doesn't paint an idealistic picture of the church. It's warts and all. Luke shows us that their prayers were effective but imperfect. Let's see why. So Peter goes to the house of Mary where the church is meeting to him, uh, meeting to pray for him. That's in verse 12. He knocks at the outer gate door. I imagine at this point the church would have been, who gathered there, uh, would have been scared that this is the secret police coming. But a brave servant girl, a girl called um, Rhoda, uh, Rhoda maybe, comes to the gate and answers. She recognises Peter's voice and she excitedly runs back to the group and tells everyone Peter's at the door. Now these are the people who have been praying earnestly for Peter. Did they believe God would release him? Well, it seems not so much. Look at verse 15. They respond to, the, to, to Rhoda. They say, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept on insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter, who's, left, who's been left hanging at the outer gate, knocking away, hello, <laughs> anyone there, hello? Uh, he's still there. Well, they open the door and they're astonished to see him. Their prayers are answered, but the prayers find it unbelievable. Apparently God has answered an unbelievable prayer. Their prayers were effective but imperfect. Well, Herod's ruthlessness is shown in his execution of the soldiers who had guarded Peter. See, in Roman law, a prison guard who allowed his prisoner to escape was liable to the penalty to which the prisoner had been condemned. There was no mercy in Herod's world. Meanwhile, Herod's relationship with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so if you think of Jerusalem, think north and up to the coast and the, on the coast of the Mediterranean, that relationship had deteriorated. Herod, it seemed, had cut off their food supply, probably Galilean corn, if you want to know. Uh, this explains why the people respond in the way they do in verse 22. Uh, this is the voice of a God, not a man. In other words, a God, you see, who provides for food. But Herod, Herod he loved that praise, didn't he? He loved it instead of, and he accepted this praise instead of honouring God and so he was struck down with worms. Herod, who denied food for Tyre and Sidon, becomes food for the worms and dies. Another way to look at it. 
The first century Jewish historian, uh, Flav- uh, Flavius Josephus, a little picture of him there, um, writing in his antiquities. So first century Jewish historian, uh, writes, writes about Jesus, writes about Christianity, the disciples as well. He described also in graphic detail Herod's death, Herod Agrippa I's death. His account and Luke's account differ in a slight, a few details. Actually, that, that's good. It shows their independence, uh, but they, they are mostly the same. Both agree that Herod was in Caesarea at the time, although Josephus writes that he'd gone there to take uh, part in a, in a festival to honour Caesar. Luke just leaves that detail out. Um, and this, and Josephus says that this festival was attended by a large crowd of leading citizens. Both Luke and Josephus mention the royal robes he was wearing, while Josephus adds the detail that his garment was made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful, which shone so brightly in the morning, morning sun that the people hailed him as a god. Upon this, Joseph, Josephus continued, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. So Luke and Josephus agree that God's judgment fell upon him because he glorified himself rather than God. Although Luke says he was eaten by worms, Josephus is content with something a bit more general and saying that a severe pain arose in his belly. Uh, which became so violent that he was carried off to his palace where he died five days later. It's all pretty gruesome stuff. Well, let's come to this last verse of this chapter. What do we see? But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Note again the contrast. The contrast between human power eaten by worms, and God's power as the word of God spread, the complete reversal of the church's situation. A chapter which had begun so well for Herod and looked so dark for the church, you got the death of James and Peter in prison, ends with the deliverance of Peter, the death of Herod, the triumph of the word of God, and the beginning of the mission to the Gentiles, ready to go out beyond the fringes to the ends of the earth. All this is typical of God's good gospel, unstoppable in its progress. You see, you cannot chain the word of God. It is unstoppable in its progress. And friends, it's a great encouragement for us today. You see, what looked like worldly power in control, Herod calling the shots, was actually far from reality. God was absolutely in control. His sovereign hand, <clears throat> sovereign hand uh, directing powerfully all events. Friends, God is to be trusted. No matter how dark things appear, calm, secure trust in him must be our response in all situations. As individuals, as families, as his church family. For his sovereign hand is at work and in control. See, the example of the church in Acts 12 is one for us to follow. That is, when difficulty and opposition arises, our response as God's church is to pray. What is our response when we are faced with dark days, with bad news? From Acts 12, our response must be two actions. We trust God that he is king. 
That means that he's in control. He's sovereign over all things. And therefore we pray. We ask of God. That's what we do. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Well, let's do that now. Let's pray. And um, well, normally I'd give an opportunity for questions. I almost said it just by uh, autopilot. Um, if you've got a question, email one in, get in touch with me. But let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. Uh, we thank you for your word. We pray that we'd be a church that prays, that trusts you. Lord, these are two simple things. If we've been around churches for a while, we know these things. But Lord, help us to do them. Help us to trust you. Help us to give thanks to you. Help us to pray. And Lord, we thank you for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.